It's good to be with you. Uh, We'll be in Genesis chapters 6 through 9, looking at a very familiar story. Um, And the title of this sermon is Noah and the Ark. This ain't your typical bedtime story. Hopefully that caught your eye where I'm going with this. Before we begin, I'd like to pray and intercede on our behalf. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. You're a gracious and a kind God, worthy of all affection and adoration and praise. Lord, and I pray that we approach your word with submission and reverence, knowing that you have spoken, and we, your people, need to listen. So God, help us. Help us to be attentive and focused, have open ears, eyes, and open heart to hear your word and be transformed by it through Christ and your Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Amen. So we've all kind of seen depictions of Noah and the ark, the flood story. We're all really familiar with um, just kind of the the story. So I'm going to assume a lot that you know what I'm talking about with the story. But I just want to kind of give you a couple ideas of how it's been projected, this story in our culture and different things. So I've had Brandon bring up a couple pictures. Just look at a couple of these, how the story's been depicted. You know... Noah with all his friends, all the animals, like, you know, kind of like a, they're all on a yacht drinking champagne or something like that. Everybody's cool and happy, you know, happy-go-lucky kind of thing. Bring up the next one. So this is fun, Operation Game. I like, I think this one is the one that has the tagline, help Noah get his animals on the ark, avoid the thunderbolts. I I think it's great. It's great. So next one, Noah's ark, I mean, everybody, look, everybody's so happy. I mean. Everybody's on the ark having fun. This next one's my favorite. Noah, Russell Crowe Noah. So, I mean, doesn't he just look incredibly awesome? Like, he is the action hero, right? So, I mean, we're all familiar with how children's literature, movies, TV shows have projected and kind of described. And actually, they've given their own interpretation of the story of Noah. In all these things, in all these pictures I just showed you, we just saw four different interpretations of the Noah story. They're all interpreting it. It's happy-go-lucky. Noah's got his friends on the boat. But looking at the story today, I, I just, I don't think that's actually the point in any of these. When we read the story, I, I don't know if the, the point is that, hey, Noah's taking care of the animals and putting them on the ark, and, or Noah's the action figure who saves all humanity from this narcissistic, vengeful God. I don't know if that's the point of the story that the author is trying to get across to us. As one author said, is that when you, when you present the story in these cases, you actually water down the story of Noah and the flood. It's kind of ironic, you water down the Noah's flood story. But that's the case. And that's what we want to get to, is that we want to we take seriously that what is going on in these chapters is serious. There is judgment. There, there's violence in here. It's not happy-go-lucky all the time. And that's the stories of the Bible. And so I want to really, for us to dig our, our, our feet in here and see, what, what is Noah's story about? What is the flood story about if it's not about Noah taking care of animals and getting on a big boat or Noah saving all humanity from destruction? What is it about? Well, unfortunately, I won't be able to read all three chapters for you of 6 through 9, so we're just going to read little portions throughout the story so that we can get the contours and what is the meaning of this thing. So the first one is this on your outline. Needle in a haystack. 
It's about God, faithful Noah, and corrupt humanity. Let's look at 6, 9 through 13. It says this, starting in verse 9 of chapter 6. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So in these first couple of sentences, we're introduced to all three of our characters in the story. We're introduced to God, we're introduced to humanity, and we're introduced to Noah. And the way that the author tells us the meaning of the story is by elaborating with, through descriptions and giving us characterizations of these characters in the story. That's how he gets his meaning across, as he tells us about God, humanity, and Noah. And so let's just look at this. Let's look at humanity first. How is humanity presented in the story of the flood? Well, in the fir- first couple of verses here, humanity is intrinsically evil. It's intrinsically evil. Things have gotten out of control here. We've already seen just from the, the previous chapters, we have Adam and Eve sitting in the garden, and then we have Cain killing Abel, and then we have Lamech who is destroying the marriage structure, and he's, he's boasting about murdering people. And then you get the sons of God, which that is weird, what, what Noah talked about, or what uh, Nick talked about last week. It's weird. But it's evil, it's corrupt. That's what's been going on in the chapters of Genesis. Humanity has shown their inherent intrinsic nature to do evil and corrupt things. It's evil. But it's not only evil about what they're actually doing, their actions. The author of Genesis is saying it's not just their actions. It's actually their intentions and their thoughts. And that's what he says in verse 5. He says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. Is that they're intrinsically evil, inherently evil. It's not just their actions, it is their thoughts. Their actions are corrupt and evil because their hearts are corrupt and evil. That's how humanity is being presented. It's like a bullet wound, almost. You see the entry where the bullet went in, you see the bleeding, but the effects are internal. It's so much deeper than the entry wound. That's how humanity is presented. So it's not just about merely about somebody killing an innocent man, as you see Cain and Abel. It's not just rejoicing over murder and boasting about destroying the marriage structure, as you see with Lamech. And it's not just about perversion and sexual immorality, as you see with the sons of God. No, no. Sin corrupts our hearts, and it's manifested in our actions. That's how humanity is presented. And it's not... Not just intrinsic humanity. It's not just that humanity is presented that they're intrinsically evil, but it's universal. This sin, this corruption is universal. It's taken over all humanity. This is not just an isolated event or an isolated incident with Adam and Eve or with Lamech or with the sons of God or with Cain. No, this is, this is everybody. All humanity has corrupted itself. Is that evil has stretched its hand and cast its shadow over all humanity what the author of Genesis is trying to get across. And he presents it in this way of, he's presenting their evil in this. It's a reversal of Genesis 1. That's how their evil is presented. Is that what God told us, what God told 
his people in Genesis 1 is that, hey, you're to fill the earth and multiply, right? Increase in the earth. That's, that was the mandate, that was a command given in Genesis 1. Well, they're not filling the earth with people and animals, are they? Look at, look at this. Look at verse 12. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now look at verse 13. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with what? Violence. So the mandate, the command in Genesis 1 was, hey, you fill the earth with people and with animals. But they're not doing that. They're filling it with Hamas, with violence and evil and corruption. They're reversing Genesis 1. They're filling the world with violence. So rather than filling it with animals and with people, humanity has filled it with disobedience, with polygamy, with arrogance, with murder, with immorality. To the point where God looks at his creation, not the same way that he looked at it in Genesis 1, because remember in Genesis 1, God looks at his creation, he says, it is what? It is good. Verse 12 And God saw the earth, and behold, it was, he didn't say good, he said corrupt. So God takes on the same action that he did in Genesis 1, but now the action has changed, it's been reversed. He's not looking at his creation saying it's good, it's corrupt, people have corrupted it. So this sin is universal, it's intrinsic and universal in the people, and it's taken over the world. But in the midst of this story, we get a bright spot. And it's Noah, right? There's a bright spot. He's the needle in the haystack. That's why I called this point needle in the haystack. Is that in the midst of all this corruption and evil, Noah is favored and found to be faithful in the midst of his perverse and corrupt generation. It's that God deems him as righteous, and meaning that God is regarding Noah as righteous in that he is obedient to God's commands in contrast to the corrupt humanity that surrounds him. And the author depicts his, his faithfulness in terms of obedience, of obeying. That Noah follows all of God's commands. Look at this, just kind of browse through these verses with me. 6.22, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded. 7.5, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. 7.16 through 17, Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark. Then in verse 17, Noah went out. Then in 7.20, then Noah built an altar. Over and over again, the author is trying to put forth to us, in the midst of this corrupt generation, there is one man who has shown himself righteous because he is obeying everything that God is telling him to do. And even more to the point, consider this. You know, we get all these, like, these blueprints about the ark, right? Like, it tells us, you know, that... Noah's to build it out of gopher wood, whatever that is, and all these other blueprints and details about the ark. And you're thinking, why, why didn't the author just say, hey, build a big boat that'll hold all the animals? Build a big boat. Well, I, I don't think he tells them the details of this ark so that we can go build one, even though it's cool since one has been built. Uh, or that we should be astonished that this is a huge boat. because It is a huge boat. But rather, it's the details of the ark are given to us to show Noah's meticulous obedience. He's meticulous even down to the type of wood that's being used on the ark. 
The author is giving us these details about the ark to show, look, Noah's being obedient down to even the odd type of wood that he's supposed to use. And that's why, that's why Noah's being regarded as righteous. Is that in contrast to sinful humanity, he's obeying God in the midst of this. And one, we, we can get one simple application from this. Is that in the midst of a culture that is surrounded by corruption and intrinsic corruption and evil, is that the way in which Noah shows his righteousness, his faithfulness to God, is that he distinguishes himself from it by obedience to God. Is that as culture, the surrounding culture, the generations around him, people around him, are just going more headfirst into evil and corruption, there is a bright spot in that Noah is distinguished from them. And we get that in other biblical characters, right? Like Daniel. If you remember the story of Daniel, Daniel's taken as an exile into Babylon. And despite government pressure to forsake Yahweh, to forsake God, and to take on the, the gods of the Babylonians and, and bow down to idols, what, is, what does Daniel do? He doesn't. He holds faith in God. He does not absorb or assimilate. But he continues to be steadfast and love to his God. And that's the picture that we get in Noah here. Is that despite the surroundings of the people who are corrupting themselves even more and more, he does not assimilate or absorb it. But he holds fast to faithfulness in his God. And I think that's an application for us is that as the world continues to go head first into sin and more corruption and evil, is that we show our obedience and that we do not absorb it, but we distinguish ourselves from it. But then we get the main character, God. So just to be clear, the, the central figure of the story is God. And I'm not trying to be like overly spiritual or this may even sound unnecessary. Oh, yeah, we know the, the, the hero of the Bible is God. Well, yeah, yeah. But, but like really, like God is the hero of this story. It is. It's very clear. Noah is not the hero, but he is, he's actually the recipient of grace and the agent by which God brings out his purposes in the world. He's not the hero. God is. And, so, and you get this because if you read these chapters, which I would encourage you all to go home and read this, Noah doesn't even speak till the end of chapter 9. And he just says a couple of words, a couple of lines. Noah is silent from 6 to chapter 9. Now, I'm just saying, I haven't ever seen a movie or read a book where the main character is silent. They usually speak. And so if God is speaking through 6 through 9, then it really is pretty clear. Who's the hero? It's not Noah. It's God. And so God in these chapters are depicted as this God who is very good and very just. And that he looks on his creation and he sees the corruption and that it's so opposite of him. This is not the creation that he made in the beginning. And so he's not a God who will lay, lay down and turn over and and neglect it and fall asleep on it, but he's a God who must, because of his just character, punish it and end the corruption in the world. And so what's so ironic is that he cleanses his creation with his creation. He cleanses the world of sin through his creation, the waters. 
And that this act of judgment by God that we get from the flood story, him flooding the creation that he made, is not the story of a malevolent God or a vicious God or a narcissistic God who is just so angry because his, his people will not listen to him. That's not the picture that we get of God in this story. No. As Nick shared last week, we get a God who, who is grieved by looking at his creation and what it's done to itself. And that he is just and holy in that he cannot let it spiral out of control any longer. He must step in. So we get this, this idea of that God is graciously just. And that, that, that's the theme of the sermon. It's gracious judgment. And that's on your outline. You can write that down. God's gracious judgment. And that may sound like an oxymoron, right? Gracious judgment. That, those two things don't go together. If you don't know what oxymoron is, let me, let me give you a couple examples of oxymoron. Jumbo shrimp. You ever thought about that when you say jumbo shrimp? It doesn't make sense. Or this one, pretty ugly. Okay, pretty ugly. Like, those are two things that are completely opposite each other, yet we put them together and they, ha- like, communicate a meeting. Oh, we get that. Or walking dead. Or virtual reality. Or truthful politician. I'm just, just kidding about that one. Or weirdly normal. Or best yet, Dr. Andrew Hunter. That, that doesn't make sense. Right? But we get that. We get the meaning of these two words that are put together. And this story of the flood story is that. It's two characteristics, character traits that are put together. And we get that. Gracious judgment. Because that is exactly what God is doing in the Noah story. He is showing his grace while he is showing his judgment. They're not incompatible. They're meant and intended to go together. God is a gracious judge. And that he shows his gracious justice through symbols. And the symbols being an ark and water. Those are symbols of God's judgment and salvation. God's judgment and grace. Let's just, let's just take a moment and look at this. So the waters, they're a symbol of justice and salvation. So as we talked about, sin and corruption has multiplied. It's prevailing. It's increasing rather than the people and the animals. So how does God respond? Well, look at 717. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased. Same word. So, in the beginning, the people were to fill the earth and increase with people and animals, yet they didn't do that. They filled the earth with corruption. So, how does God respond? I'm going to fill the earth with judgment through waters. That's how God responds. Is that the waters are a symbol of judgment, and it's comprehensive in nature. This is totality type language, is that the waters are taking over the corruption says in 6.17, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. And so what is happening in the flood? What is happening through the use of this instrument of justice waters? Well, God is undoing creation. He's, well, you could say, decreating it. 
He's undoing the order that was there in Genesis 1. And you've probably been in a situation like this. You ever spent hours upon hours organizing something only to have your three-year-old come and disorganize it in five seconds? I'm not speaking from personal experience. God help me. But this is what's going on in creation. Is that the order that God gave to creation, he gave it function and meaning and purpose in Genesis 1. Now, through the flood, he's undoing order. He's reversing it. The flood is reversing the order of all creation that God initially gave it. And let me just give you one example of how this is happening. Uh, I want you to look at 7.11, chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, listen to this, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. So in the beginning, if you remember, in Genesis chapter 1, God made a separation, right? He separated the expanses. Well, what verse 11 is saying is that, boom, no more separation. He's undoing the separation that he did in Genesis 1. Meaning, the earth and the skies, they're undoing their order and their function and letting out water. And so, the flood is undoing the order that God gave in creation to judge his creation. But the waters are also, they also symbolize salvation. And you're like, how does a, a, an incredible, an all-encompassing flood symbolize salvation? Well, think of, of it like this. The waters are the instrument by which God uses to rescue and liberate Noah from his corrupt generation. And we've seen waters kind of hold this dual picture, right? So in Exodus 14, if you remember that story where Israel is going out of Egypt and then Pharaoh starts pursuing them, right? They get to the Red Sea and they cross through it and they're on the other side and Pharaoh's like, I'm going after him. So he goes in the Red Sea. Well, what happens? God brings the waters down on top of Pharaoh's head and kills his whole army. Now listen how the author of Exodus reflects on this. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. So this water that was used in the Red Sea for Pharaoh... It is a symbol of judgment and God's justice. For Israel, it's a symbol of their salvation because he saved them out of Egypt. And that's how the flood, that's how the waters are functioning here is that they're undoing creation, but they're a symbol of God's great salvation for Noah, but also God's great judgment on corrupt humanity. And the ark functions the same way, a symbol of judgment, and a symbol of hope and salvation. And so to bring this together is that God is not ignoring the atrocities and, and the corruption that has invaded the world that he created. That as humanity is trying to revert or reverse the goodness that was in Genesis 1, God is reversing it back through a flood. He's undoing the order that was there. And so yet while God shows his supreme and ultimate justice by wiping out humanity, he also shows salvation in that he saves Noah. 
God is a gracious, gracious and just at the same time. Though it may sound like an oxymoron, it is not. It is true, and it holds together. He graciously judges. And point two, creation reboot. The new Adam and the Eden 2.0 with the covenant. Has anybody ever had to do like a hard reset on their phone? Like you just see like it's being like super slothful and slow, and you're like, dude, I got to hit this thing with a hard reset. It's just, it's just terrible. That's the best way that I can describe what's going on here after the flood and with the flood is that God is doing a hard reset on his creation, bringing it back to factory settings, if you want to use that language of an iPhone. That's the best way that I can describe it. Though the, the post-world flood is not a sin-free zone, it's a better scenario for God's people in his world. And the way that he presents it as, or presents Noah as this new Adam and, and in Eden 2.0 is that he borrows language from Genesis 1 to show like this post-world flood is, is like a new creation for, for Noah and his family. Is that Noah is this new Adam in this new world almost. But things are a little bit different. Now let, I, I just want to show you a couple, couple of things, how it's a new, new earth or a new world, a new Eden, Eden 2.0 for Noah. That if you look at 8, 17 through 19, it says birds and animals and creeping things are brought to swarm upon the earth. It's the same thing that was said in Genesis 1. In 8, 17 again, animals are commanded to be fruitful and multiply. Same thing that was said in Genesis 1, 22. Humans are told to be fruitful and multiply in 8, 17, or in 9, 1 in verse 7. Same thing that was told to them in 1, 28. And then human beings are reminded that they're still in the image of God. That's said in 9.6. Same thing that was told to them in 128. So the author is borrowing all this language from Genesis 1 into Genesis 6 through 9 and saying, this, this is Noah's the new Adam. And this world is the new Eden. So he's echoing back. But this new world and this new Adam, there's something different there. Is that God's going to establish a covenant with them. Now let's read 8, 20 through 22. It says this, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Then he goes on to give more details about this covenant that he's making with them. But God is making a covenant with Noah, with this new humanity. And there's some different dynamics there. Now they can, it seems like they can eat meat now as long as they drain the blood out and, and that they are to not kill people, as we've seen has been a problem in the previous chapters. And so, because people are made in the image of God. But that's not the center of this covenant. The center of this covenant is that there's going to be stability in creation. That's what he's getting at in verse 22. Is that despite corruption and how that might pervade and continue to grow in this world, is that God is not going to step in and wipe it all again through a flood. There's going to be stability in this creation. As Tom Schreiner says so well, what the Noahic covenant teaches is that despite the disruptions in the natural order, the world will go on. Life will not be snuffed out altogether. Tragedies and disasters will occur. 
but the world and life in it will still persist. So the world is going to still continue to go on. And so the provision of this covenant is an indicator that God is continually working with his people and working in his people to renew his creation and restore fellowship back to himself. That's what the covenant means. That's why he gives Noah a covenant. Is that This is my agreement with you that I'm doing something. I'm working in this world, in my people, to bring you back to myself, back to the original garden. And so there's a hope, right? You get to the end of this chapter, and end of 19, you're like, man, Hey, some adjustments have been made. There's some different dynamics here. But all in all, it looks like we're back on track, right? Looks like we're all good. Looks like everything's kind of been settled. The flood's taking care of everything. Man, we're back in the garden. We're back in Genesis 1. We're good. But that's not the case. Point number three is this. Same song, different verse. Story continues. You ever heard that line, that age-old adage? Same song, different verse. What's that mean? Which means events are happening the same as they've always happened. Repetition, right? An action or event is repeating itself. Nothing's really changed. Well, honestly, that's the best way I can describe this, this last story in 9, 19 through 29. Same song, different verse. Because it's an odd story. 19, 18 through 29. Let's just read it. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth was dispersed. Now here's where it's getting weird, so please uh, make sure you put your eyes on this, because this is an odd. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. Then Shem, Ham, and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, and he knew that his youngest son, what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of the servants of servants shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. What is going on? Right? It's weird. Is that we see the post-flood Noah. He, he's drinking from the vine. He's getting so wasted. that He lays naked in his tent. And then Ham walks in there, don't really know what he does. To be honest, there's a lot of speculations. Don't really know what he does, but he does something wrong. And then he comes out and he tells his brothers, I don't know if he's like joking like with his brothers or something or insulting his dad. Don't, don't really know. The text really isn't kind of giving us those details. Then the brothers walk in with a, with a jacket to cover their father. And then once Noah kind of comes to, cognizant, like he's super angry, so he curses Ham. And you're like, whoa, this is mind-blowing. I don't know what just happened here in the story. And I don't, it seems like so out of place, right? Well, it's not. The author gives us this story here to emphasize his main point in this text. The flood did not change the human heart. The flood did not change the human heart. 
is that this story is almost a redepiction of the fall of Genesis 3. And it's, I'll just give you a couple ways it is. The parallels are so striking, you, you cannot deny them. Listen, just as the first people, Adam and Eve, were in the garden, now Noah's in a vineyard. Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree, but Noah drank from the vine. Adam and Eve recognized they were naked, and Noah lay naked in his tent. Both sets of peoples had their eyes opened, and they knew. And after each event, there was a curse. That is strikingly parallel to Genesis 3. And I think that's what the point of this is, is to present this that despite there being a flood, it did not change the inclinations and the evil that was so deep-seated and intrinsic and inherent in humanity. Natural or human means did not change anything in these people. And so let's kind of try and condense everything that's going on in these three chapters into a couple statements. First, here's what we learn. Humans are incredibly sinful and corrupt. Second thing that we learn is Noah demonstrates obedience in the midst of a corrupt generation. God is gracious and just in his actions by saving and judging. And God renews his creation and gives his people the best possible scenario to succeed. A new Adam in a new Eden with a covenant. And lastly, we learn the flood cannot change the human heart. So what do we learn from the story? Of the great flood, God showing his grace and judgment, and then Noah and Ham doing some really awful things that we don't really get a clear picture on. First, we learn a lot about evil and sin. And that evil and sin cannot be remedied by self-motivation, not even by a flood. And so I think that's, that's a really pointed application for us today, is that our culture bombards us with quick fixes. Take this pill, do this diet, buy this object, and your problems are over. And so we take that into our own Christianity and say, well, if I just do this, and I'll, I'll get rid of the problem. Well, as we learn, if a flood can't even fix a human heart, then self-help books and 10 ways to become a better person in 2018 are not going to help either. Which we need is a new heart. And that's only going to come through Christ who brings the new covenant and gives us a new heart and a new spirit so that we can obey him. So I would, I would encourage you people, don't, don't be persuaded that self-help books and, and, and these cultural f- quick fixes can actually change a human heart. They cannot. We also learn about the image of God in this text in 9.6. 9.6 is a, a really big text that's quoted in, uh, you know, in the pro-life movement and, and in capital punishment and things like that. And, uh, yeah, we should be pro-life, and I, I'm not even going to touch the capital punishment thing. Um, but I will say this about the image of God, because if it's told to us again here in 9.6, I think God is wanting to communicate that. People are made in the image of God. And yes, we should be against institutions that demean, denigrate, or destroy the image of God in people. So we should be against 
abortion clinics and Planned Parenthood and euthanasia and things like that. But we should also be against other things that we don't naturally think about that also denigrate and demean and destroy the image of God in people, like substance abuse, self-mutilation, human and sex trafficking, etc. All these things denigrate, demean, destroy the image of God in people. And so what I would say is that as a church, as the church of Jesus Christ, as believers who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, we need to have an approach that says, yes, we want to be just and we want to go after institutions and substances that destroy the image of God in people. But we also want to show incredible grace to those who have been affected by it and who may have even contributed to it. And that may be hard to say, maybe even hard to think. But even people who have contributed to these institutions, we need to say, God's grace is even for you. Ultimately, what we learn from the flood is it's a warning. That's how Jesus and the apostles interpret the story. That Jesus uses the flood as a warning saying, look, Christ's return is imminent, just like the flood was imminent. People didn't know it was coming, and they just swooped in and took them. That is Christ's return. It's like a thief coming in the night. So repent and believe now. Prepare yourselves now. And I would give you the same urge now. If you are sitting in here as an unbeliever, let the story of the flood urge you and motivate you and warn you to prepare yourself for the coming return of Christ by repenting and believing in him even now. But I think it's a warning for even us believers too. It's not just for unbelievers, but it's for believers too. And that's how Peter uses it. So he says, let the flood that happened with Noah urge you to live lives of godliness and holiness. And so we read this story as believers, and we should say, okay, just as it came quickly on on the people of Noah's generation, it will come like that for us. So am I ready, am I prepared for Christ's return? It's by asking questions like, is how I'm living now demonstrating that I'm prepared and I'm preparing myself for Christ's return, knowing that all my works will be exposed on that day and I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So, believer, are you, are you ready? Are you living lives of holiness and godliness in light of the Noah story, knowing that Christ's return will be even more imminent? And next, I, I want to say something to the skeptic in here is that you might, be, you might come, have come in here just randomly, or you may just be natural, naturally a skeptic. Like, I, this story is so absurd that a God would come and wipe out all humanity and, and take out all his creation because they didn't obey him and they were corrupt. It's so absurd that God would do that. How, how ridiculous of him. How absurd is that, that he would do something like that? Well, skeptic, I want to say something to you. That's not the absurd part. You know what is absurd? That in the midst of an overwhelmingly corrupt world, God would even save one person. That's absurd. That is absurd. That God would graciously look down and even save one person. That is the absurd part to me. It's not that he wipes out all humanity, because we know we deserve it. But that he saves one person. That is absurd. That is ridiculous. 
And lastly, I want to say this, is that the flood story is a reminder that God is a renewing God. He's not a God of discarding or disposing of, as he could have easily have done. He could have thrown us out like yesterday's trash. But God is a God of renewing and transforming through the redemption that comes in his son Christ and by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so you may be sitting in here thinking, it feels like I've been disposed of, discarded by God. What I'm going through, the darkness I'm in, the tragedies that I've gone through, it feels like God has disposed of me, his purposes, and his plans for me. Let me remind you, he is not. He is not a God of discarding or disposing, but of renewing and restoring and redeeming. Do not forget that. So in the midst of your darkness, in the midst of your trials and your pain and your suffering and your toil and your hardship, remember, God has not forgotten you. He has not forsaken his plans, but he is doing He is putting you through these situations to prepare you for the new heavens and new earth where the renewing God will be with his renewed people in his renewed heavens and earth. God is not disposed of you, but he's using these situations to renew and restore you. And so as Lamech said in 529 that he thought his son Noah was going to be the one who brings rest from our hardship and toil, we end the flood story and we see there's still hardship and there's still toil. There is no rest. And I would just end on this. Is that we know that rest will only come from the new and true Adam who brings and offers rest to his creation and to his people. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The rest that was not found in Noah will only be found in Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that indwells in us. And that God, we pray that in the midst of darkness and trouble and pain and sorrow, that you are a God who renews us. And that situations that we go through is a reminder that, God, you are making all things new through Christ and by your Holy Spirit. You are making all things new. And that Christ is the one who does come and brings rest. And we will be restless until we find rest in him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand as we sing? Thank you.